if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, continuing our study in 1 Corinthians. This morning we'll be looking at verses 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. If you do not, if you do not have a Bible, excuse me, then I invite you to take one of the pew Bibles there. Grab one of the pew Bibles and you t- turn to page 904 in the Pew Bible, page 904 in the Pew Bible, and if you do not have your own Bible at home, uh, then we invite you to take that Pew Bible with you, and that's our gift to you. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word, so please take that and use it for your own benefit. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28. Now, when we make an investment... You know, when you make an investment, you you have to weigh investment cost against investment return or investment results, right? What it costs you to invest and and what you're going to get out of it. What's the return? What's the result of that investment? That's just smart investment strategy, right? And and the same thing is with, with discipleship. As followers of Jesus Christ, Jesus, in fact, tells us in Luke chapter 14 to count the cost of discipleship, right? He says, don't follow me lightly, count the cost, because it will cost you if you follow Jesus Christ. It will cost you. It will cost you friends in this world. It will cost you uh, people to surround yourself with. It's going to cost you In many ways, if you follow Jesus Christ, you're not going to be able to do all the things that you want to do, that the flesh desires to do, right? And so there is cost in following Jesus Christ. And there's cost in pronouncing faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even that, right? Pronouncing faith. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's cost in that. You will be ridiculed in this world for professing faith in a resurrected Lord. It's just absolute fact. In fact, we see Paul, for example, as he declares the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the city of Athens, other philosophers ridiculed him, saying, "Uh, what does this babbler wish to say? What's this idiot talking about, in other words, right? They They ridiculed him for his profession of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yet, as you count the cost of faith, you must also consider the wonderful results of the resurrection. You have to to look at the results of the resurrection. And then determine if faith in the resurrection, that declaration of faith in Christ, is worth the cost. And let me assure you this morning, it is worth the cost. It is absolutely worth the cost. Now, just to remind you what's taking place here in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians, you remember, it's Paul's letter. The Apostle Paul, he's writing to the church in Corinth. And so Paul has already established this church in Corinth. He did that on a second missionary journey. He established the church. He spent about two years there, kind of getting, getting things in order. 
and now he has moved on, and now he's on his third missionary journey, and at, at the time that he's writing this letter, he is most likely there in Ephesus, and he's building a new church, doing a new work, and he spends about three years there in Ephesus, but as he's there in Ephesus doing this new missionary work, he, he hears word. He gets a letter from the Corinthians, and, and he hears about things going on in Corinth. And, and this new church, they've kind of gotten off track on a few issues. And, and so as we've worked through the, the first Corinthians, the letter of first Corinthians, we've looked at some of those issues already. And now he comes to this issue on the resurrection. There's some people in the church, they're getting it wrong. They're getting it wrong. They're, they're kind of getting off track with the doctrine of the resurrection. Uh, there are some who have compromised their faith because they don't want to be called idiots, right? They don't want to be called morons. They don't want to be, called, they don't want to be ridiculed by the other people, their pagan peers in the city of Corinth. And so they're, they're holding on to this idea of the resurrection of Jesus. We've already kind of seen that. They're, they're not denying the resurrection of Jesus per se, uh, but they're denying the resurrection of believers. You see, they, they don't want to be ridiculed because the popular philosophy of the day was that platonic dualism, that idea that the, the flesh is corrupt and the, the spirit's goal is to be out away from the body, right? To be freed from the body. And, and you wouldn't want to enslave the spirit back in the body again and so that was just craziness this idea of a bodily resurrection of re-enslaving the spirit in the body again that was just crazy in greek thought and so some of the corinthians they're saying oh well let's just kind of go with the popular view today and let's just hold on to that platonic dualism and let's add it into the church but paul says no you can't do that you can't do that because that's not what Scripture says, right? Uh, that's not what, what Christ has told us. That's not what God has revealed to us. It's not that. You have to hold on to the resurrection of believers. I mean, that's the good news. That's the good news is the resurrection that we will one day experience. We won't just become this, this unformed spirit out there floating around in the cosmos no we're looking forward to a day that our spirit will be reunited with our body and our body will be made absolutely perfect just as jesus christ is perfect and we will live in an eternity in in the body in a perfect human body and so as paul has began to begun to to reveal this and argue his case Paul started by going back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? If you, if you deny the resur bodily resurrection of believers, then ultimately you're denying the resurrection of Christ because if there's no resurrection, then Christ hasn't been resurrected. And so he backed up to the resurrection of Christ and he's already demonstrated five evidences of the resurrection of Christ. Then he offered two devastating consequences of no resurrection, which we looked at last week, and you can sum that up. No resurrection, no hope, right? If there's no resurrection, there is absolutely no hope for us. We're all just doomed. At best, we're just dead. Never, you know, we just go out of existence. At worst, we're condemned to hell for all of eternity for our sin against the holy God. So no resurrection, no hope. But then as we move now to the next paragraph, Paul says, but, 
but, and that's the good but, right? There, there, that was the bad news last week. No resurrection, no hope. But now he says, but, in fact, Christ has been resurrected. And so today, he points us to three glorious results of the resurrection. Three glorious results of the resurrection. And these three glorious results will show us that the resurrection of Christ secures eternal hope for all who believe the resurrection of jesus christ secures eternal hope for all who believe so no resurrection no hope but because there is a resurrection our eternal hope is secured in the resurrection of jesus christ so my hope and prayer today is that your hope is secured in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as we look at these glorious results in 1 Corinthians 15. Well, if you found your place then in 1 Corinthians, please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20. But, in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also uh, come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after, uh, to God the Father after destroying every ruler and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all things, all his enemies, under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it, uh, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. And you may be seated. So as we consider these three glorious results of the resurrection, the first glorious result of Christ's resurrection that we, we notice here in our text this morning is the future resurrection of believers has been guaranteed. The future resurrection of believers has been guaranteed. It is a guarantee. It will happen. Look there at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, of course, those who have fallen asleep is talking about those who have died in Christ, right? They're, they're, they're not dead. They're not, they're not gone. They're, they haven't been annihilated. Uh, their bodies have been laid to rest. Their bodies are asleep. 
Now, 2 Corinthians, he tells us to be apart from the body. The spirit to be apart from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. They're not dead, right? They're, they're in the presence of the Lord. Their spirit is with the Lord. Their body is at sleep, though. It's asleep. It is laid to rest. But here's the hope, right? Christ is the first fruits. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the first to be raised from the dead and never to die again. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, uh, you know that there's been several people throughout all history who were raised from the dead. You go back to the Old Testament. Elijah raised a widow woman's son. Elisha raised the Shunammite's son. And then there was that man who was tossed in Elisha's tomb. And, and as soon as his body hit the bones of Elisha, boom, he was brought back to life. And in that, then in the New Testament, of course, Jesus raised several people in his ministry. Jesus raised a widow's son. He raised Jairus' daughter. He raised a woman named Tabitha. And then, of course, his good friend Lazarus. Then at the, the crucifixion of Jesus, Scripture tells us in Matthew 27 that that uh, when Jesus was crucified, that the dead were raised. There were some believers who had died before Jesus died, and, and they were raised from the dead, and they went into Jerusalem and preached the gospel to their family and friends. And, of course, Paul tells us in Acts, or we see in Acts, Acts chapter 10, t uh, 20, excuse me, that Paul raised someone from the dead. He uh, raised Eutychus, who was a young man who fell asleep in the windowsill as Paul was preaching for Three hours, right? Paul, was, he was long-winded. Y'all think I'm long-winded? Paul, three hours. Young Eutychus couldn't take it. He fell asleep. He fell out of the balcony. He fell to his death. But then Paul went back there and he raised him from the dead, right? So, so there's all of these people in Scripture who God raised from the dead. By the power of God, they were raised from the dead. But the, the difference between those people and Jesus, those people died again, you can go to Lazarus's grave. I mean, if we knew where it was, we could go to Lazarus' grave. His bones, his remains would still be there. All of those people eventually died again. They were brought back to life for a moment to show the power of God, but then they, were, they, they died again. But Jesus, he was resurrected never to die again. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, the first to ever be raised from the dead never to die again, raised to eternal life in God's kingdom. So he is the first fruits. But he, saying this, that Jesus is the first fruits, Paul is also, he's taking us back, if you will, to the Old Testament, to a, a, a festival in the Old Testament that's supposed to point us to Jesus. It was called the, the, the Feast of the Harvest. In the Old Testament, the Feast of the Harvest, uh, it's given to us in Exodus chapter 23, verse 16, and then again in Leviticus 23, 9 through 14. But just for uh, us this morning, Exodus chapter 23, 16 says, You shall keep the Feast of the Harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. So every year, as Israelites would go out to, to the harvest, to begin the harvest, they would go out and gather the first fruits, right? The first pickings, if you will. And as they go out and they get the first pickings, 
uh, that wasn't to be stored away. No, that, that the first pickings were to be brought to Jerusalem, and they threw this humongous feast, right? All of that was dedicated to God. The first fruits were dedicated to God, and they celebrated God's provision in the nation with those first fruits. Now, as they dedicated those first fruits unto the Lord, number one, they were pronouncing their faith in the God of the harvest, right? We're, we're, we're sure that God has given us these first fruits and he's going to bless us in the upcoming harvest. So it's a, a pronouncement of faith, but it's also a guarantee from God, right? He's the one saying, here's what you got to do. You got to have this feast of the harvest, this feast of the first fruits. And so this is God's guarantee to the people of Israel as they bring in their first fruits. He's guaranteeing a future harvest. They are celebrating God's guarantee on the harvest that's still yet to come. And so Paul, using that language in the New Testament, he, he's reminding us of that Old Testament text, that feast of the harvest, that feast of first fruits to remind us that this that jesus the resurrection of jesus christ is god's guarantee of our resurrection right the harvest is not done it didn't end with jesus there's a harvest there's the full harvest still yet to come have you ever bought something with that little sticker on it that little gold seal 100 percent satisfaction guaranteed uh, that guarantee there is to tell you that if you're not satisfied with that product, you can bring it back to the company and, and they'll make it good, right? They'll give you your money back. They want you to be satisfied. And, and so the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's Jesus' seal. That's God's seal. His promise that a harvest is still yet to come. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees the future resurrection of all those who believe in Jesus. Praise God for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we have the hope, we look forward to the day that our sovereign Lord and God will return and resurrect us to eternal physical life in his glorious kingdom so the resurrection of christ the first glorious result of the resurrection of christ is the guarantee of a future resurrection of believers the second glorious result of christ's resurrection is the defeat of sin and death has been assured the defeat of sin and death has been assured it's assured to us jesus has conquered sin and death look at verse 21 for as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead for as in adam all die so also in christ shall all be made alive and so Paul brings in this comparison. He does it at other places as well. Romans is a, another famous place where Paul uses this, this, this contrast between the first man, Adam, who is our, our physical father, right? He was the first man through whom all of us exist. We, 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 we exist physically because God first created Adam. And he was our representative, representative there in the Garden of Eden, representing us before God. 
And then there's the second man, Jesus Christ, who is the very Son of God who, re who represents us in the act of redemption. So in Adam, all died. In Adam, all die. We're all dead in Adam. Because you go back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, and you see the narrative unfolding. There our human representative, our first representative in the Garden of Edom, Eden, Adam, was put there in the Garden of Eden. And God said to Adam, look Adam, here's the Garden of Eden before you. Right? It's all before you. It's all yours. And you can partake of all of the fruits of the garden except for this one tree, right? That one tree over there in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Leave that one alone. You can have everything else. Leave that one alone. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we all know what Adam did. Adam and his wife Eve they got a little closer and a little closer to the tree, right? And, and then here came the serpent. Did God say, right? Did God say you'll really die? Oh, you're not really going to die. And, and so the, uh, Satan, the serpent, tempted Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve partook of the fruit that they were forbidden to partake of. They sinned against a holy God. God had put them there said, trust me. Trust me, right? Trust me. And stay away from that one tree. But Adam and Eve didn't trust God. They didn't trust God. They trusted the serpent instead and said, what the serpent has to offer sounds a whole lot better than what our holy God has to offer, so we're going to follow the serpent. And they sinned against a holy God. Now, when they sinned, did they physically die? No. Of course, the process of death began, began right? It began in that moment, but they didn't die in the moment. In fact, Adam lived another 930 years. He, he lived. He died when he was 930, almost 1,000 years old, right? And so he lived a lot longer, but in that moment when he sinned against God, guess what happened? Death did occur, spiritual death. It was spiritual death. Before that, Adam walked with God in the cool of the day there in the Garden of Eden. He walked with God, talked with God, had a, a relationship, an intimate relationship with God. He communed with God. But when he sinned against God, that relationship was broken. And he was banned from the garden, banned to be in the presence of the Lord. He died spiritually, and ultimately he died physically. In Adam, all die every human being is dead in adam all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god there are none who are righteous no not one all die in adam yet in christ all are made alive all have been made alive in jesus christ now we need to clarify here that all there the first all is a universal all it's everyone all mankind is dead in adam that second all though is not a universal all and we know this because as paul continues on he, he does clarify that it's those who who are in christ those who believe in christ who are saved so not all universal are saved 
those who believe in Christ are saved. Those who are in Christ have been made alive. Jesus, you see, he defeated sin and death. He went to Calvary's cross and he defeated sin and death in our place. He lived a perfect life. He lived what he, he did what Adam failed to do, right? He, he, he lived a perfect life in a perfect obedience to the will of God the Father. He did everything right. And though he was without sin, though he didn't deserve death, he deserved life. So even though he didn't deserve death, yet he went to Calvary's cross. And there on that cross, he stood in our place. And he bore our sin and our shame and our guilt on Calvary's cross. And the complete wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ. The wrath that was reserved for us was poured out upon him. He took it all. He bore it all in our place. And the resurrection gives us assurance that every sin has been paid for. It gives us assurance that death has been defeated. It is no more. The resurrection of Christ assures us that sin and death have been defeated. They've been defeated. We no longer have to fear sin and death. Now we know sin still continues in this world, doesn't it? And so does death. We see loved ones die all the time. So what's the deal? Why is this true? Why, why do we have this assurance that sin and death have been defeated, but yet there's still sin and death? Well, you know, May 8th, May 8th of every year is considered VE Day, right? Victory in Europe. That's the day that uh, the German forces officially surrender to all the Allied forces ending the war in Europe. But now, did you know that even after VE Day, battles continue to rage for weeks and even months after that, right? Because there were some Ger German soldiers out there that just refused to give up. They, they continued to fight, and it took a while to eradicate all those forces. But VE Day, it assured the victory. It assured the victory that would come. You see, the defeat of sin and death was accomplished on the cross. Furthermore, the defeat of sin and death has been assured in the resurrection, but God, God's work on earth is not yet complete. He's not finished yet. Matthew 24, 14 tells us, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You see, there are still people in this world who need the gospel. There are still people in this world whose name has written, been written in the Lamb's book of life. God hasn't gotten to them yet. Praise be to God that uh, it all didn't end when Jesus was resurrected because we wouldn't be included in the number, right? We would have never been born. We would have never come to faith in Christ. God's plan is that he would have a kingdom of people who would come in. God's not done yet. But when the last of that number is added into the church, when the last of that number is added into the kingdom, 
then the end will come. But on the cross, sin and death were defeated. And in the resurrection, we see the assurance that sin and death were defeated. There's nothing left for us to pay. There's no penalty left for us to bear. If we trust in Jesus, the penalty is gone. Victory is assured. Now let me ask you, do you believe? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you surrendered your life to him? Are you in the number? Are you in his kingdom? If not, today is the day of salvation. Trust in the Lord and he will save you. So in the resurrection of Christ, the future resurrection of believers has been guaranteed. The defeat of sin and death has been assured. And third, the consummation of God's eternal kingdom has been inaugurated. The consummation of God's eternal kingdom has been inaugurated. Now, when you think about the inauguration of, of president, we just had back in January, Joe Biden was inaugurated as president of the United States, right? The inauguration marked the beginning of his reign, if you will, as president of the United States. It marked the beginning there's still more of that to come, right? He's got some years left. But the inauguration marked the beginning of his rule and reign. Well, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that was the inauguration of the kingdom of God under the leadership, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. His rule and reign was inaugurated. It was began in the resurrection of Christ. And this, Paul makes this clear here. He begins to unfold this in the next few verses. Look at verses 23. But each in his own order. Paul is now going to give us the order of things, in case we might get things out of order. Each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. He's the first in the resurrection. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we're not there yet. We're not to the end yet. But Jesus Christ, he is the first of the resurrection. And in his resurrection, his kingdom has been inaugurated. When he was raised from the dead and when he ascended into heaven, he ascended to his heavenly throne. And now he sits in heaven on his eternal throne, ruling and reigning over creation and in particular over his church. He is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. And so first, Christ is, res is resurrected, then believers. Then believers, all those who believe in Christ. They're next, right? We're next. Those who belong to Christ, we're, we're the next to come. We're, we're not there yet, but that is still yet to come. Now, after the resurrection of believers comes the millennial reign of Christ. The millennial reign. Look at verses 24 and, and 20 through 26 there. We kind of see this. Paul doesn't work this all out in detail, but we see the, the, the framework of it. 
then comes the end or the goal, the, the, the final purpose of, of all of this. The goal, then comes the goal, the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The at last enemy to be dis, uh, destroyed is death. Now, notice there he says, after destroying every enemy. So we got some steps here. Then the end, but then there's this after, right? After, before, before that happens, there's something else that takes place. There's something else that has to be, take place. Christ has to destroy every rule and every authority and every power. Now, he's already started that. He's begun that in us. As the Holy Spirit lives in us, he's destroying the power of sin over us. He's giving us freedom over sin. But that's not yet complete either. But we see in the millennial reign of Christ, more of those enemies are being put down. More of those enemies are being destroyed. If you have your Bibles and like to turn there with me, turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 is our, our fullest picture of the millennial reign, and it's only a snippet as well. It's just a clip. But we see the millennial reign of Christ in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, it reads this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain and he seized the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended after that he must be released for a little while then i saw thrones and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed also i saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of jesus and for the word of god and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands they came to life right they came to life. They were resurrected. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So those who are in Christ were raised to reign with him. Those who are not in Christ, those who remain dead to Christ, they remain in the grave until the thousand years had ended. This is the first resurrection, the resurrection of those who are in Christ. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle their number is like the sand of the sea and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city 
but fire came down from heaven and consumed them not a lengthy battle and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur were the beast and the false prophet were and they were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever then i saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them and i saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were opened then another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were ju judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done the record of their lives right and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the, fire, the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, in the millennial reign of Christ, all of Christ's enemies will be brought to submission. All of Christ's enemies will be brought to submission. And in the final judgment, death and Hades will be put to death. Death and Hades will be cast into eternal fire. Death and Hades will be annihilated, will be destroyed. So we have the millennial reign still yet to come where Jesus Christ will defeat all of his enemies and then comes final consummation. Then comes the final consummation. Now, in our text, back in, in hold, hold Revelation, if you want to flip back to our text, you can. Uh, you see in verses 27 through 28, the final consummation alluded to, for God has put all things... That is, God the Father has put all things into subjection under His feet, under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. In other words, God the Father is the exception, right? When all things are subjected to Christ then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. You see, the final consummation of all of this, the final uh, purpose of all of this, is to bring everything, all of creation, back in its original form, back to the way God intended it at the beginning of creation, to be all in God to all worship at the throne of God. Now, it, it talks there about Jesus being subjected under the Father. Now, let's explain that. Let's work that out just a little bit. Uh, we don't want to get into a big discussion about the Trinity because that's a whole new lesson altogether, isn't it? But in the, the Trinity, right, there's, there's one God, one God and three persons. Now, in the, the Trinity, there is what we might call functional subordination. Functional subordination. Now, don't be confused 
with functional support, or don't confuse functional subordination with subordinationism. Subordinationism is a heretical view that says there's, you know, there's this hierarchy of God, right? God is, is higher, he's more exalted, and the Son and the Holy Spirit are lesser gods. That's, that's not true. That's not right. That's not what we're talking about. That's, that's heresy. Scripture clearly tells us that there is one God, one God in three persons. And all three persons of the Trinity are equally God. They are equal in, in dignity, equal in deity. They are equal in, in essence. They are one. Jesus says, I and, the Father, I and the Father are one. So they're equal, completely equal. But in the, the operation of the Trinity, how they function with one another in creation, in redemption, there is a, a, a subordination kind of structure that works. God the Father takes the, the, the headship of the Trinity, if you will, right? Right, he's the leader. God the Father is, he takes that term. I mean, that's why we call him God the Father, because he takes that, that role of leadership in the Trinity. The Son takes the, the role of a son, and the Holy Spirit takes the role, again, of, of another person working in the Trinity. And so the Father wills things he desires things he leads in in things he leads in creation he leads in redemption the son goes out to accomplish that purpose whatever that purpose is and the holy spirit kind of empowers that purpose he applies that purpose we see this most clearly in the act of redemption in god's work of redemption in eternity past god willed knowing that he would create human, human beings, knowing that we would fall away from God, that we would fall into sin, God willed that he would save a people for himself. The, the book of life was written in eternity past, right? God wrote all of our names, those who would be saved. He wrote our names in the book of life in eternity past. He willed, he desired that a people be redeemed for his kingdom. He then sent the Son to accomplish the work of redemption. And so on Calvary's cross, in his life, and then on Calvary's cross, Jesus accomplished the work of redemption. He redeemed the people for God. And then the Holy Spirit comes. He's sent by the Father and the Son to apply redemption to us. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us life in Christ. He regenerates us so that we can see Jesus and trust in Jesus and follow Jesus. He gives us the power to, to overcome sin, right? He gives us that new life. He applies that redemption to us. And this is an eternal relationship. God is always, God the Father is always God the Father. God the Son is always God the Son. God the Holy Spirit is always the Holy Spirit. And so they work in cooperation. They work in, in harmony with one another, right? There's, there's love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They love one another, and they, they love to do what pleases the other. They're, they're working in harmony, but each one in his own role. And that's important to see. Hey, that's how it is supposed to be in the family, isn't it? The Father is to lead the family to lead the family in righteousness, lead the family in their walk with God. And, 
and the family lovingly submits, right? The wife lovingly submits, and the children lovingly submit to his leadership. But, but you know, for that to work like it's supposed to, there's got to be equal love around the board, just like it is between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that's how we're to work, and that's how God works. And in the final consummation of things, Jesus will always be king of God's kingdom, right? He's the eternal God-man, the eternal God-king of God's kingdom. But at the same time, as son, he is delivering everything, all of his defeated enemies, to the feet of God the Father. You might think of Jesus as the mighty general who goes out to conquer and destroy the enemies of God, and then he brings back the spoils unto the father and that's what we see there and what paul's saying there at the end of that that verse one day christ will deliver the kingdom back to god the father so that everything will be in order like it was supposed to be from the very beginning like god had always intended it to be the consum the the kingdom will be consummated the kingdom will be established the end will be and we don't know anything past that except for eternal joy and happiness in our Father's kingdom. So we see the consummation of the kingdom. That's the order. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. Now we have the guarantee of our resurrection. And in that guarantee, we also know that God's promising us a day that the, the, the king will return. He will return and establish his millennial reign here on earth. And then the glorious consummation of that kingdom, the final consummation of that kingdom, when he delivers his kingdom in perfection unto the Father. No more enemies left. No more death. No more sin. No more Satan. No more temptations. No more sickness. None of that. All of that laid to rest. And we enter into that perfect kingdom under the leadership of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the victorious King, surrenders all things to His heavenly Father. The resurrection of Christ secures eternal hope for all who believe in Him, who trust in Jesus. So the question for you today, my friend, is this. Do you believe? Do you believe? God assures us that all of this is going to take place. All of this is working towards his end, his goal. Everything is going that way. And, and we can look at, at past events. We can look at the life of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and, and what God told. God said that's going to happen. It happened. Now he's telling us this is going to happen. God's given us his word. But the only way we get to enjoy it is by trusting in Jesus. Surrendering to Jesus now as Lord and King of our lives. One day, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. For those who believe, it will be a willingness, right? Even now, we willingly bend the knee to Jesus. We bow to Jesus and surrender to Him as Lord of our lives. But one day, 
all the other knees will bow. All the enemies of Jesus will bow before him. Not in loving submission, but under the authority of an iron rod of Jesus, forcing them to bow the knee. They'll have no choice but to bow the knee when they're confronted with the wonderful power of Jesus Christ. Which side of that will you be on? Lovingly submitting to the authority, the loving authority of Jesus Christ in your life now? Or made to submit to his authority on the day of judgment? If you wait to the day of judgment, there's no hope. There's only eternal suffering, eternal death, eternal life away from the Father and all of His goodness. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you surrendered to the King now? If not, let today be the day you surrender. Jesus says, my burden is easy. My, my, my load is easy. My burden is light. Will you trust in Jesus? Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for all that it assures us of. Lord, we know we have eternal hope. We are assured of our eternal hope in Christ because you raised him from the dead. And because you accomplished the first what you told us in the first half of the book, we know that you're going to accomplish what you said in the second half of the book. And we know that we have your eternal, glorious kingdom to look forward to. Oh, Lord, we praise you. And, Lord, we just pray as, as, as Christians, we want to pray to more, to today that, Lord, that we would completely surrender our lives to you. And Lord, that your power, the resurrection of, of your, the, the power of your resurrection working in us now would defeat sin in our lives and that we would just be completely surrendered to your, your, your rule and reign over us. Lord, I know there's some here today listening from afar, whatever the case may be, they've never trusted in Jesus. Oh, Lord, let them see the hope that is in Christ. And let them surrender to Jesus today. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.